good morning, Harvest. How are we doing this morning? It's so great to be with you guys. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 19, 11 through 27 with me. Luke 19, 11 through 27. If you're on your phones, we're in the English Standard Version, the ESV. If you don't have a Bible, there will be ushers coming around with one for you to have. And if you need a Bible at home, feel free to keep this one as our gift to you. And this morning we're going to be looking at the parable of the ten minas. Now by a raise of hands, how many of you guys have heard of the parable of the ten minas? Great, we've got some Bible scholars in here this morning. So this is a less known parable. And many of you might know the parable of the talents, but this one's a little bit different. So we're going to focus on this story. In fact, when I was talking to my mom, she questioned me. She said, what are you preaching on this morning, Billy? And I said, the parable of the ten minas. And my mom looked at me and she said, the ten what? I said, mom, the ten minas. And she said, the ten what? I said, mom, the parable of the ten minas. And she stared at me and she said, the ten miners? So she thought I was preaching on the parable of the ten miners this morning. Uh, but that's not the case. We're in the parable of the ten minas. You learned a little bit about me from the video. My name's Billy. Um, for two years now, I've been at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary at Cornerstone University where I'm getting a Master of Divinity degree in pastoral studies. And during those last two years, I've been attending Harvest. This will be my second year leading a 20 small group. And for several months now, I've been helping with the sermon planning process. So that's how I got this opportunity. And I'm so happy to be with you guys today. I'm interning here at Harvest. You know, I think as Christians, we would all agree that we are living in uncertain times, aren't we? We're living in difficult times. And I'm not discounting all the blessings we have here in West Michigan, but there's a lot of uncertainty as Christians today. In fact, many Christian scholars describe the times we're living in as the already but not yet. And what they mean by that is Christ already came and died on the cross for our sins. And the kingdom of God is already being ushered into the world and spreading across the earth. But it's not yet here in its fullness. The kingdom of God will not yet be here in its fullness until Christ returns. Until that great day where our Lord comes back and wipes every tear from our eye. And death and mourning pass away. But we need to ask ourselves as Christians today, what do we do in this time between? The big idea this morning is what I hear in the end depends on what I do while I wait. What I hear in the end depends on what I do while I wait. What do we do while we're waiting for Christ to return? I got to get one thing clear also. Christ saves us, okay? So maybe you've heard Pastor Dave say this. When we stand before God someday at Christ's return and he asks us what merits favor with him, our answer better be Jesus Christ in his work or it's going to be a really short interview, okay? So we got to get that right. But we also don't want to miss on the other side and say just because we accept Christ, we can live however we want. So there's two extremes we want to avoid this morning. One is that we work our way to heaven. Only Christ's work gets us there. But the other extreme we want to avoid is to say just because we call Christ Lord means we can do whatever we want. That's not the case either. As the parable of the ten minas will make clear, there will be rewards handed out when we arrive in heaven. And every single person in this room and every single person in the world is in this parable. And every single one of us is going to hear one of three answers. The first answer will be the death of unbelievers at the judgment. The death of unbelievers at the judgment. And nobody wants that. The second will be, you wicked servant. And none of us want to hear that either. But the last answer, no pain you're going through this morning. 
No difficult situation in your life, no difficult family situation can compare to the surpassing riches and eternal glory of hearing from our God when we stand before him. Well done, good servant. That's the answer we all want to hear. And this morning we're going to look at three ways from our passage that we can hear, well done, good servant. Look at Luke 19, 11 with me. It says, as they heard these things, what things? Well, in Luke 19, Jesus had just saved a wee little man who climbed a sycamore tree named Zacchaeus. You might have heard of him. The only problem with Jesus saving Zacchaeus is that Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And as you probably know, the Jews were not too fond of their tax collectors. Because the tax collectors were typically Jews who partnered with the Roman government to tax their own people and get rich off their own people. They were viewed as traitors. So why would Jesus save Zacchaeus? Well, Jesus says in response to those who are angry at him saving Zacchaeus, <clears throat> he says, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. It's like Jesus was saying to his naysayers, you're missing my purpose. If you understood my heart and why I'm here, you'd rejoice when our brothers and sisters like Zacchaeus and others come to know Christ. And while we wait in the time between, we need to remember our main purpose is to seek and save the lost. So we got to get that right. Look back at Luke 19, 11 with me. If you've been in this series, you've probably learned that Luke, Luke will give us the reason for the parable right before he goes into it. So Luke 19, 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, it's reached a fever pitch. He has many followers. And the expectation was, as they travel from Jericho to Jerusalem, you ascend a small hill to the great city, and it's like the kingdom of God would have been ascending like the sun over Jerusalem. And so there was a great expectation that when Jesus got there, you know, they laid down palm branches and said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so there was this messianic expectation that when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, that he would usher in the kingdom of God right away. So if you were one of his followers in that group, you may have been talking to your friends like, hey, I bet I'm going to have a higher place in Jesus' kingdom than you, man. Hey, I wonder where you're going to be seated at in Jesus' kingdom. And this would have been their talk. But as we know today, Jesus was going to Jerusalem to receive the kingdom just in a very different way than his followers thought. Today we know that Jesus went to Jerusalem and received his kingdom by going to the cross and dying for our sins, raising from the dead and sitting at the right hand of the Father. And someday he's coming back for us. And so this is the context of our parable. I said at the beginning of the message, we're going to look at three ways we can hear that beautiful answer from God. Well done, good servant. The first way we hear well done is I recognize who is really in charge. I recognize who is really in charge. Look at Luke 19, 12 with me as Jesus begins to tell the parable. <clears throat> he said, therefore... A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. Now really quick, stop there. A mina is money, okay? It's three months wages. So he gave to each of his ten servants the same amount, three months wages. And said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. 
when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those, these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Christ owns everyone and everything. I want you to notice in these verses that he went to receive for himself a kingdom. He called 10 of his servants. He gave them a total of 30 months wages, 3 times 10. It's his money. He told them to take his money and engage in business. And most interestingly, if you look at verse 14, it says those citizens who hated him and sent a delegation after him, they're, li they're still listed as his citizens. This should crush the misconception in our world today that if you want nothing to do with Christ, then he wants nothing to do with you. That couldn't be farther from the truth. You know, if you accept Christ, he owns you. If you reject Christ, he still owns you. If you attend church every week, you belong to Christ. If you don't attend church, you still belong to Christ. If you're an atheist, a Muslim, a Buddhist, whatever you are, Christ owns you. This is his world, and we're all just living in it. And this is important for us to get as Christians because I think if we were honest, many of us would admit that we, when we came to know Christ, we came for somewhat selfish reasons, didn't we? Many of us, when we came to know Christ, it was out of a crisis, and we just needed help to meet that need. And many of us, when we came to know Christ, we kind of held on to our own little kingdoms, don't we? Those things we put before God. It could be our money. It could be our family. It could be your kids. It could be your job. But we hold on to our own little kingdom. And even subconsciously, I think sometimes we view Christ as someone we brought in to partner with us and further our own kingdom. And what inevitably happens to us as believers is storms come, just like the Bible taught us, and our own kingdom gets shattered. And sadly, so many of us in those moments, we get angry with God, don't we? We rebel against God when hard times come. And what we're saying to God in those moments is, God, that was not the deal. The deal was, you come in and you help me advance my kingdom. And it's like Jesus is saying to us in those moments, no, Billy, that's not the deal. You signed up for my kingdom, of which I rule. The good news is, Billy, my kingdom lasts forever. But if you read my word and you understood how it worked, you'd know it's not if troubles are coming, it's when they come. And you would, you would cry out to me and lean on me because you'd know I'm making you more like me through the storms. You know, i got to apologize up front. I'm not married. I don't have kids. So most of my examples are going to come from my basketball career. Now, this is the life I have to give you. So, um, you know, my dream growing up was to play college basketball. And when I got there, uh, I went through some difficult circumstances. <clears throat> I had a total of four season-ending injuries. And in five years, I played a total of just three games. So it was a lot of sitting, watching, and waiting. I, had, I blew out my knee three times, uh, three ACL tears. So I, was, I was spent a lot of time sitting on the bench. And as I got towards the end of college, tragically, I think I rebelled against God for a time. Actually, I don't think I did. I know I did. And I made some mistakes, and I got angry at God. And reflecting on that as I've gotten a little older, I'm realizing now that what I was saying to God is, God, this was not the deal. God, this is how it's supposed to work. You make me a great basketball player, and then I give you the glory. That's how this works, God. And it's like Jesus was saying to me, no, Billy, you've got it all wrong. That's not how this works. I make you more like me through everything that comes into your life. And you trust that it's for my glory and your greatest good. 
And during that time in college, I think we would all admit as Christians, we need the Lord's strength, don't we? When we're not spending time with the Lord, we are so sapped of strength. It's so hard to get through days. And during my college career, when I was, even when I wasn't living right, it's like I was coming to God. And he wants us to come with open hands. But I have my hand closed around my basketball career. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a good basketball player and wanting to give God the glory, okay? But when I closed my hand around it, that's idolatry. I made it a non-negotiable. And so when I would go before God, I'd say, God, I need your strength. It's like God would look down at me. He'd say, Billy, I want intimacy with you too. So tell me, what's in your hand? Open your hand. And that's what God will do to us when we close our hands around things. But when we recognize who's really in charge, that we have a king who loves us and has our best in mind, and we're a part of an unshakable kingdom, we won't close our hands around anything. We'll serve our Lord with open hands, but we have to recognize that he's in charge of everyone and everything. So that's the first way we hear well done. We recognize who's really in charge. The second way is I'm faithful with what I've been given. I'm faithful with what I've been given. Now what the world teaches us about success, you could call it the American dream or just worldly success, is you start with nothing, you start at the bottom, and any money you make and any fame you acquire or anything you gain in this life, you can spend it however you want and on your own desires and pleasures because it belongs to you. And that's what the world teaches us about success. But the Bible knows nothing about that kind of success. The Bible knows everything about faithfulness. Now what the Bible teaches us in the New Testament, that word faithfulness, it means this. Faithfulness means dependability or trustworthiness, okay? So we want to aim for faithfulness. So first we got to get right that Christ saves us. So after we get that right, what this looks like for me is if I'm laying in my, in my bed at night, I can basically count on one or two hands the things that I know God has entrusted to me in my life. The things he's given to me on loan that I don't own. He owns them. But he's entrusted to me in this season to be faithful with. So I can say I'm a son and a brother. I'm a small group leader. I'm an intern here at Harvest. And so these are just a few of the responsibilities I have. And most of us can count them on one or two hands. And I can say, am I being a faithful Harvest intern? Am I a dependable small group leader? Am I a trustworthy son and brother? And this can give us an idea of how we stand before God. And listen, none of us will ever be held accountable when we stand before God for things we didn't have. And I think sometimes we worry so much about things that we don't have and we neglect the things that we do have. And it's like what God is saying to you and me is just be faithful in that job you hate right now. Just be faithful in that situation you're struggling in. Let me trust when I'll bring something else. Maybe I'm doing a work in your heart through that. If you look at the screen, it says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is an amazing truth. Do you know that before the foundations of the world, God created you and me with the specific gifts, talents, and abilities that we have to meet a specific kingdom objective, to fulfill a specific kingdom work. And so that excuse, that lie from the enemy that he tells us so often, that we don't really have that many gifts, what could we really do for God, that's a lie. And take that captive to Jesus Christ. It's not true. All God's asking us to do is step out and be faithful with the opportunities we've been given. 
So back to my college basketball career when I was a freshman, uh, I redshirted. That means you don't play in games your first year. <clears throat> and so I wasn't playing in games. And I had a teammate named David. And David was a senior. He played the same position as me. And I looked up to him. He was a great player. And I think he saw Christ in me. And so he would come to me before games and ask me to pray with him. And looking back, that was certainly one of these opportunities from the Lord. And so my game within the game began to be just praying for David. And just to show you how much of a jar of clay I am and how little I understood the gospel, my thought process was kind of like this. Okay, God, I'm going to pray for David. And then you help him make like five or six three-point shots. And then, you know, he'll, he'll definitely believe in you because he'll, he'll know the prayer worked and he'll believe in the gospel. And that's how this has got to go. And, you know, so I'd be sitting on the bench after I prayed with him. And, you know, I remember I'd be sitting on the end of the bench and David would testify to this. Some of those games after we prayed did not go great. And I'm on the end of the bench and I'm like, what's happening? You know, did, did God hear my prayer? Like, what's going on? And so there were some tough games for David and that whole season went by and David hadn't accepted the Lord. And then a few more months went by. David hadn't accepted the Lord. In fact, I hadn't talked to him for a while. And he was going to be leaving college that year. And I remember I wrestled with this. I so badly wanted my brother to come to Christ. And I remember thinking in my own heart, like, God, I said the prayers, but did I not say them well enough? God, did I not take enough opportunities to share the gospel with David? And I was so concerned with how I handled it. But the very last week before David left college, I heard back from him. And David said, Billy, I want to go to church with you. And, of course, I said to him, man, that would be great. Let's go to church. And so we went to church. And that night it was pitch dark out. It's hard not to get emotional when I tell the story. It was just a great moment in our lives. But David asked me to say a prayer to accept Christ with him. And I prayed with David to accept Christ with him. And he left college. And to this day we're great friends. In fact, David is one of those people, and you might know people like this. The moment they accepted Christ, they're just like off and running. And he's that type of person. Today he works with NBA players and high-level high college programs and players on their skills and their shooting. And David's sharing the gospel with them. In fact, last summer I was watching ESPN with another pastor at, a, at a, a restaurant around here. And we looked up at the TV and there was David coaching a basketball team on ESPN. Where maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of followers were watching. And I love David's boldness because he had a Jesus shirt on. And I just sat there and I marveled at that. And now the question I, I think I asked myself when that happened was, did I save David? No, I didn't save David. I think I used to think maybe I saved people. But that situation made it abundantly clear that David got saved in spite of me. <laughs> and all God was asking me to do was say a few prayers with someone before a game. And sometimes we psych ourselves out and we think we need to do too much. Listen, what opportunities is God giving you? What person is God asking you to pray with? Who is God asking you to come alongside? God saves people, and he didn't create us out of some place of eternal unhappiness. Listen, God is not needy like us. He was totally fine before we were here. And so he didn't come here to get us to work for him. God works for us. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. But God wants to include us in his work. It brings our God great joy to let me pray with David and be a part of his salvation. And God wants to include us. He's just asking us to be faithful with the opportunities that we have. Look at Luke 19, 16 with me. We're going to learn from the two faithful servants. And so the king has returned and received the kingdom. And the first servant comes before him. <clears throat> the first came before him saying, Lord... Your mina has made ten minus more. 
And he said to him, this is the answer we want to hear, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. So let's focus on how these servants answered, okay? So they call him Lord. They get that right. And then notice, they don't say, here, God, I made you ten minas. Let me keep half of it. I made you five minas. Let me keep half of it. No, these servants say this. They say, your mina, your money made ten more. Yours made five more. It, when I was reading this, it, it's like I picture, I picture it this way. It's like the, the king comes back and these, the first servant comes before him. He's like, Lord, you gave me this money. If you own everyone and everything. This is your world. This is your economy. You created all this opportunity, Lord. And, and I just put my head down. I didn't listen to everybody and, and all the naysayers. I just did what you called me to do. And look, it made ten more, Lord. It made five more, Lord. Here's your money. These are humble servants, aren't they? These are faithful servants. They're diligent. They're expectant of their king's return. And these are the type of servants we need to be as we serve our Lord. So in thinking about that word faithfulness, I, I think you could sum it up with this simple definition. Faithfulness is what I do with what I've been given. Faithfulness is what I do with what I've been given. Are you making the most of your opportunities today? What do you need to do to make the most of the opportunities God has given you? So those are the first two ways we can hear, well done. I recognize who's really in charge. I'm faithful with what I've been given. And the third one, this is huge for us. I understand the heart of the king. I understand the heart of the king. Look at Luke 19, 20 with me. <clears throat> so now the third servant is going to come before the Lord and give an account for what he did. It says, then another came. That word for another, it literally means a different type of person. He says, Lord, got his title right. Here is your mina. He got it right. It's, it's the Lord's mina, but he doesn't get much else right. Which I kept laid away in a handkerchief or a napkin. And focus here, this is, this is why. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. This man's calling our Lord a harsh taskmaster and a thief. And so verse 22, God says back to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow, why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And so what God is saying to him, if you really thought this about me, God's not confirming his characterization of him. But he's saying, if you really thought this about me, wouldn't it be wiser to put it in the bank and at least make me a little interest? Look back at verse 24. And this is God speaking still. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. You see, the one who had one mina, he was acting like he didn't have it anyway. So God, like a wise businessman, gives it to the one with ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. So these people aren't too happy with God's grace. 
And then God says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So why did this servant bury his gift? You know, we gotta, there's a lot of questions we could ask. One of them is, what was he doing with all that time? What was this servant doing with all that time? We should ask ourselves that question. Are we sit and soak Christians who come to church and sit and soak in the gospel but never really squeeze it out for the kingdom? Or when we come here, do we take heed how we hear God's word and make the most of it in our lives? This passage makes clear that the primary difference between the faithful servants and the one who did nothing, who squandered his opportunity, was how they viewed God. This servant said, for I was afraid of you. And this isn't like an Old Testament fear, reverence, awe for the Lord. This is a different, this is a twisted afraidness of God. This servant was afraid of God. The first two knew that he was loving. This servant saw his God as a harsh taskmaster who makes us slave away for him and then takes everything we earn. And lest we think that's an odd response, isn't that how so many of us as Christians view God? So often I think we view trust and obedience to God as some form of slavery. And like he's just going to take whatever we do for his kingdom anyway. But we need to make sure we get our view of God right. How we view God determines everything we say, do, and think. First, I wanna, here I want to look at the king's heart. So the king's heart. The first thing I want you to notice from this parable is that Jesus gives us opportunities. Jesus gives us opportunities. Notice here when the nobleman left that he wasn't just looking for lip service. When the nobleman left, he wanted to see what they would do with the mina. He's saying, look, if you're really about me and my kingdom, when you hear my gospel, you'll do something. You'll make the most of it in your life. If you really care about me and my kingdom while I'm gone, you'll make the most of your opportunities. The next thing we notice about Jesus is that he is gracious. I think sometimes we throw around words like grace and we don't really think about what they mean. I mean, pay attention in the story to what happened to the faithful servants, okay? So this first servant comes before the Lord and for a short period of time, God had trusted him with three months wages, a small amount of money. And he was faithful with that for a short period of time. And so God returns and if somebody took three months wages and turned it into 30, we might say they should split that in half. You know, it was the king's money, let the servant keep half. That's our economy, but that's not God's economy. What God says to that servant is, okay, you were faithful for this short period of time with three months wages. Here, have authority over ten cities for eternity. To the second servant, have authority over five cities for eternity. We have to get this right about our God. He is gracious. And it's like God is saying to us, look, I've given you these few opportunities. Don't be so worried about what you don't have. Stick it out with what you do have. Trust that I'm coming back and I want to pour out eternal rewards on you. I want to tell you well done, good servant. I want to give you everything in eternity. And so we need to keep our eyes on the opportunities we have and be faithful with those and understand that we serve a king that's given us the opportunities and that is lavish. He's gracious and he pours out rewards on our lives. And the last thing we notice about Jesus is that he is patient, isn't he? He is so patient with us. Look at 2 Peter 
3, 8, and 9. It should be up on the screen. <clears throat> but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So in the parable, maybe his followers were asking, why did the nobleman go to a far country? And I think many people today are asking, where is Jesus? There's so much hurt in this world. Why hasn't he come back yet? Why hasn't he come back and wiped every tear from our eye? Why do we got to go through this? Why are there so many injustices in the world? And this verse tells us, first of all, that God doesn't view time the way we do. If a thousand years is like a day to God, how long has it been since Jesus was gone to God? Two days? It's been about two days to God. And so he has a different perspective than us. The other thing we notice is we're told here why God is being patient. It's not slackness. He's waiting and longing for every single person in this room and every single person in this world to get right with the king, to come to repentance. It says in Revelation 6 that there are martyrs in heaven at the altar. And they're saying to God, how long, Lord? How long till you come back and make everything right? And it's like even as I'm giving this sermon, God's up there with the martyrs surrounding him. And it's like he's lovingly holding them off and saying, hold on. A few more of your brothers and sisters got to fulfill their call. Hold on. I still got to save that family member. Hold on. I'm waiting for that believer to make the most of their opportunity. Hold on. I'm still waiting. We got to save one more lost person. We got to save one more. And that's the heart of our God. That's why he hasn't come back yet. So we want to be with him in his work and help save lost people. And look at Luke 19, 27 with me. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And this is the tragic fate of unbelievers, of people who reject Christ. And clearly this is a strong verse. But why do people reject Christ? This parable makes clear that people reject Christ because they don't want him to reign over them. People just don't want Jesus' authority in their lives. You know, we've all heard the arguments. There's an intellectual reason they don't believe in God or why would God create hell or why does God allow suffering? But the truth is most of us just want to do whatever we want to do. But as many Christians could testify here today, there came a point in our lives where we realized that we were not the best at running our own lives. We're not the best authority at calling the shots. And we have a God up there in the universe who runs the whole universe. And we keep him out and say, I can run my life, God. And the God of the universe, think about that, is up there telling us, Billy, let me run your life. I think I can do it a little better. And so in that view, it's kind of stupid that we don't let him. What do you need to do here to get right with our Lord? One thing I've learned as I prepare for this message is that God works on the speaker's heart before he gives the speech. I can tell you that every, three of these, every one of these three points has become very real in my life lately. Lately, God's been reminding me that I'm not in charge and it's not about building my kingdom. And in those moments, Jesus lovingly comes alongside me and nudges me and says, Billy, let me call the shots. I think I can do it a little better than you. And so often I worry about what I don't have and I neglect what I do have. 
And in those moments, Jesus comes up to me and he taps me on the shoulder and he says, Billy, here's your responsibilities. Why don't you focus on those? You need to do a better job with those. And the last one's been the hardest for me to get in my whole Christian walk. And that's understanding the heart of our king. There's times in my life, especially when I was younger, where I viewed obedience to God and trusting God as some form of a lesser life, that it's less fun or it's really not the best thing for me. And those moments, sometimes when I'm in tears, God comes alongside me and he puts his arm around my shoulder and he says, Billy, I love you. What do you guys need to do with Christ today? Nothing will compare to hearing, well done, good servant. Everything you're facing, everything you're going through in life cannot compare. It all passes away in the face of the surpassing joy and riches of knowing Christ, of being right with him, and of hearing, well done. We do that by recognizing Christ is in charge of our lives, that we're in his kingdom. We do that by being faithful with the few things God has given us and not worrying so much about the things we don't have. And we do that by understanding the heart of our king, that he loves us, that he's given us opportunities, that he is so gracious, pouring out his rewards on our lives, and that he is patient with us, longing for every single one of us to come to repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the Bible teaches us that when your word proceeds out of your mouth, it does not return to you void. It accomplishes the purposes for which you've sent it. Oh Lord, on every individual life here, would you pour out your word and let it land how you want it to land. We worship you and as we worship you and leave this place, Lord, we rejoice that someday it's inevitable that you will, you will return and wipe every tear from our eye and there will be no more weeping or mourning or death. And we anxiously await that day. In Jesus' name, amen.